This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You say I am a politician and good for nothing. What will you say when you learn that after January next, I shall cease to be a politician at all? So is the fact. I have formally and definitely announced my intention to resign at that period, and have ordered a house to be taken for me at New York. My dear Eliza has lately been very ill. Thank God she is now quite recovered, except that she continues somewhat weak. My absence on a certain expedition, with the army, to suppress the whiskey insurrection in Pennsylvania, was the cause. You will see, notwithstanding your disparagement of me, I am still of consequence to her. December of 1794 found the most powerful member of Washington's cabinet and arguably one of the most powerful members of the federal government, Alexander Hamilton, firmly decided on an exit strategy to extract himself from the administration. He had returned to Philadelphia from western Pennsylvania on December 1st and on that same day told Washington of his decision. What could make the man who Benjamin Franklin Bosch accused two episodes back and one month in terms of the narrative, of using his official position and his being given command of a military force to be taking, quote, a first step towards a deep-laid scheme for the advancement of his private interest, to be giving up all of his official authority and returning to life as a private citizen. Quite simply, his long-neglected wife, Eliza. Welcome, dear listener, to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Before we dive in, I'd like to thank Thomas Daly of the American Biography Podcast for providing the opening quote for today. If you haven't checked out the American Biography Podcast, I highly recommend it. Thomas has been going through the life of someone who briefly appeared in this series in episode 1.17, but who is going to grow ever more prominent as we move into the Adams presidency, John Marshall of Virginia. Thomas's examination of Marshall's life has added greatly to my understanding of the man who would come to be known as the great Chief Justice, both his strengths and his shortcomings. And he even recently brought on noted historian Paul Finkelman, whose upcoming work adds fresh insight to the contemporary understanding of Marshall. Go check it out. Well, after you finish this episode, of course. We haven't talked much about the relationship between Hamilton and his wife Eliza during the course of the podcast, except for a brief note way back in our special episode on Hamilton, as well as in episode 1.4, where rumors were circulating in New York City, back when the Big Apple was the nation's capital, that Hamilton was having an affair with his sister-in-law, Angelica Church, who was also, by the way, the recipient of the letter from which our opening quote came. Eliza also made a brief appearance in episode 1.18, when both she and Hamilton contracted yellow fever. Hamilton biographer Ron Chernow notes how Eliza, quote, remains invisible in most biographies of her husband and was certainly the most self-effacing founding mother, doing everything in her power to focus the spotlight exclusively on her husband. Cokie Roberts, in her book on the founding mothers, describes her as, quote, the second daughter in the family, the plain and quiet one stuck between two vivacious beauties. 
Chernow proclaims that, quote, her absence from the pantheon of early American figures is unfortunate, since she was a woman of sterling character. Beneath an animated, engaging facade, she was loyal, generous, compassionate, strong-willed, funny, and courageous. Short and pretty, she was utterly devoid of conceit and was to prove an ideal companion for Hamilton, lending a strong home foundation to his turbulent life. His letters to her reflected not a single moment of pique, irritation, or disappointment. By the end of 1794, however, his wife was suffering physically. As noted in episode 1.22, her most recent pregnancy had not gone smoothly, and by the time Hamilton arrived back in Philadelphia, he learned that Eliza had suffered a miscarriage. Now, Chernow points to Eliza's miscarriage and attributes Hamilton's guilt at being away and neglecting his family once again, as expressed in our opening quote, along with a need for rest after years of frenzied activity in helping to get the government and his plans for the nation's finances and economy off the ground as the reasons for his decision to resign at this point. Lawrence Kaplan, on the other hand, argues that Hamilton had wanted to resign for a while, but had only remained to ensure that Madison's efforts to attack British commerce after Jefferson's departure, as discussed in episode 1.21, were thwarted, and that Jay's special diplomatic mission to Britain was a success. While that may have been a reason for Hamilton's remaining as long as he did, it is problematic to assert that he left because Jay had successfully concluded a treaty with Britain. By Hamilton's own admission in a letter to Washington on February 25, 1795, the treaty still had not arrived in the U.S., by which time Hamilton had already left his post at the Treasury Department and returned to New York. We'll get back to the issue of the treaty shortly, but the resignation of his trusted advisor notwithstanding, it is clear that Washington, as 1794 was drawing to a close, felt that the nation was on firmer footing and a smoother path. On January 1st, 1795, he issued his second proclamation of thanksgiving, calling for, quote, a day of public thanksgiving and prayer for February 19th. The proclamation begins with Washington asserting that, quote, when we review the calamities which afflict so many other nations, the present condition of the United States affords much matter of consolation and satisfaction. Our exemption hitherto from foreign war an increasing prospect of the continuance of that exemption, the great degree of internal tranquility we have enjoyed, the recent confirmation of that tranquility by the suppression of an insurrection which so wantonly threatened it, the happy course of our public affairs in general, the unexampled prosperity of all classes of our citizens, are circumstances which peculiarly mark our situation with indications of the divine benevolence toward us. Kaplan was correct that Hamilton had offered to resign previously, as we discussed in episode 1.20, but in the context of events of the time, it seems that it was more about a struggle for authority and power than a genuine desire to leave the government. And at the time, Washington had easily convinced him to stay by telling him that he was needed. Now, however, it seems that Hamilton was genuinely interested in returning to New York to be with his family and Washington was evidently convinced enough that, as he had put it back in May, quote, the clouds over our affairs had been dispersed enough that he could make do without Hamilton. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So where do we stand at this point anyway? Let's do a quick run through. The Whiskey Rebellion is done and dusted. Things are quieter in the Northwest Territory following the Battle of Fallen Timbers. Further south, though, there had been issues in 1794. Despite the peace negotiated with the Muskogee by James Seagrove, there were some white citizens unwilling to accept that peace was an option. Elijah Clark, who had served during the Revolutionary War with distinction, was one of these white citizens, and he gathered a militia force to launch raids on Muskogee towns. Increasingly as the year progressed, the attacks of whites on Muskogee continued, and Clark resigned from the Georgia militia in order to accept a commission from the French as a major general. You'll never guess who issued the commission. That's right, our old friend, Edmund Charles Genet, as part of his Attack the Spanish from the United States plan that we discussed back in episode 1.17. Clark's initial plan would be an invasion of Spanish-held Florida, but after Genet's recall, he would abandon that plan in favor of launching a full-scale assault on the Muskogee. I mean, at this point in May 1794, he already had a force of 150 to 300 men, and they were just sitting around twiddling their thumbs. Why not cross the Oconee River and take some land? Clark and his men did just that in the summer of 1794, but then they went a step further. Knowing that the U.S. government would not support this move, Clark decided to issue a proclamation in July declaring the establishment of the trans Republic. Just for perspective, this is around the time of the Battle of Bower Hill in the Whiskey Rebellion. Apparently, the summer of 1794 was the time for defiance against the federal government in the U.S. Unlike the Whiskey Rebellion, where the Mingo Creek group was attempting to establish something new in an area already settled by white citizens, Clark and his group were establishing a new settlement. They constructed a series of small forts and a new town and settled in. At first, it looked like Clark's vision might actually succeed, as Georgia Governor George Matthews was reluctant to move against the popular Clark, and a local justice even sustained Clark in the insurrection, ruling in court, quote, that he, Clark, had not broken any local ordinances. However, other voices quickly entered the fray against Clark. State Judge George Walton, who was also a former governor and one of Georgia's signers of the Declaration of Independence, issued a charge to a grand jury in Augusta in which he outlined how Clark's actions in leading troops across the Oconee and declaring the establishment of the Trans-Oconee Republic violated not only state but federal laws and threatened the peace and stability of not only Georgia but of the entire United States. Meanwhile, Governor Matthews received orders from Secretary of War Henry Knox to mobilize militia forces to bring Clark to justice. Armed with Walton's arguments and Knox's orders, Matthews sent Generals Jared Irwin and John Twiggs with a force of over a thousand across the Oconee River to confront Clark and his forces in late September. After initially pledging to resist, Irwin made an offer for Clark and his men to receive full amnesty if they surrendered and returned back across the river with them. Clark finally agreed, and as the group moved out, 
Irwin had the settlement and the forts burned, and the Transaconi Republic faded into ashes on the ground. Now, all of this could have gone so horribly wrong and ended in bloodshed, violence, and continued conflict if the Muskogee had acted on the provocation of the Transaconi Republic, but they didn't. Officials in the area reported back to the federal government that the Muskogee, quote, were at no time more quiet than they are at present. They seemed both to have confidence in the federal government to resolve the situation in such a way that would abide by their treaty obligations and to have had a strong commitment to a peaceful resolution. Thus, on New Year's Day, 1795, the entire West, both North and South, seemed to be proving the Washington administration and its policies a success as peace was settling in. What else? Domestically, though there were still Democratic-Republican societies being organized and operating and differences of political opinion being expressed, some of the fervor seems to have died down a bit in 1794. Jefferson was back at Monticello. Furneaux and the National Gazette were gone. James Monroe was headed to Paris. One major player did remain on the board, but Representative James Madison had been distracted away from his laser-sharp focus on politics in 1794 by affairs of the heart. In May 1794, Madison had asked Senator Aaron Burr to arrange for him to meet a young widow who had lost her husband in the yellow fever epidemic that had raged through Philadelphia in the year prior. This young widow, Dolly Payne Todd, was 26 years old, 17 years younger than Madison. She had grown up in a strict Quaker tradition, while Madison had a much less rigid religious upbringing. While being brought up in the Christian tradition, Madison can best be said to have, quote, neither embraced fervently nor rejected utterly the Christian base of his education. Dolly was described as having, quote, a stately step and a sweet, engaging smile, while people wrote of Madison that he was, quote, a gloomy, stiff creature, the most unsociable creature in existence. It seems as if, to use a cliche, opposites attracted when they met. For after months of courting, on September 15, 1794, James Madison and Dolly Todd were married at the estate of George Steptoe Washington, the president's nephew and husband of Dolly's sister, Lucy. We'll have much more to say further down the line about the marriage of James and Dolly as, spoiler alert, Madison will become the fourth president in 1809. But for now, the important thing to know is that the opposition in 1794 was more docile than it had been in previous years when they had been riled up by the debates over banking and assumption and during the Genet Affair. Even with the father of the document otherwise occupied, the Constitution seemed to be humming along smoothly. The Supreme Court had what has been described as its first major case come before it in February 1793. In that case, Chisholm, a citizen of South Carolina, sued the state of Georgia for the price of clothing that he had supplied to the state during the Revolutionary War, but for which he had never been compensated. The Georgian state government, however, refused to appear in court as it claimed immunity from the suit due to its status, quote, as a sovereign and independent state. The court, in a four-to-one ruling, ruled against Georgia. A month after the Chisholm ruling, a constitutional amendment was introduced in Congress that would restrict the power of the federal judiciary to hear suits brought against state governments by citizens of another state or by non-U.S. citizens, thus clarifying the intention of Article 3, Section 2 of the Constitution, which was cited in the Chisholm decision. 
After being passed by Congress, the amendment went through the prescribed ratification process and on February 7, 1795, was ratified by three-fourths of the states and thus became the 11th Amendment to the Constitution. Again, this was proving that disagreements or issues could be resolved in a reasonable, orderly fashion in a government of the people. Washington's dream and the vision of the framers of the Constitution were playing out in reality, while from the perspective of Philadelphia, it seemed that the rest of the world was being turned upside down. We discussed the fall of Robespierre and the Thermidorian reaction in episode 1.23, which covered most of the events in France in 1794. As the year went into its final quarter, the Thermidorians consolidated their control by issuing a decree on October 16th, quote, that all clubs and societies should publish lists of their members, and all correspondence between them was forbidden. This was an action taken to quell any potential opposition, most especially from the now ousted Jacobins. In November, the Jacobin Club was closed. Then, in December, the Girondins, who had not met their fate at the hands of Madame Guillotine during the period of Jacobin rule, were reinstated in the government. As noted by William Doyle, quote, The political turnabout was now complete, but the return of the Girondins and the elimination of the most notorious of terrorists were not harbingers of a return to restraint and consensus. So far from reconciliation, 1795 was to be a year of revenge. To close out the year, the Thermidorian government took advantage of one of the coldest winters of the century to order French armies to march across frozen rivers and invade Holland. By January 18, 1795, William V, Prince of Orange and Stadtholder of the Dutch Republic, had fled his country for Britain, and the French were firmly in control. In case you think Western Europe was the only place stirred up by revolution and warfare, let's take a brief look at Poland. Up until around the time that Washington was taking office, Poland had essentially been a puppet state under the authority of Russia. It had suffered the embarrassment in 1772 of having a third of its land and two-thirds of its population divided up between Russia, Prussia, and Austria, and its ruler, King Stanislaus, had been unable to take action. In May 1789, however, the Polish Diet, or Legislative Assembly, ordered Russian troops out of Poland. In order to strengthen itself against Russian opposition, Poland allied itself with Prussia in March 1790, and King Stanislaus, inspired by the American Constitution, called for the drafting of a new constitution which was ratified by the Diet in May 1791. The Russian Tsarina Catherine had had more than enough of enlightenment and revolutionary ideas, and she certainly wasn't going to have it on her back doorstep. Thus, in 1792, she sent the Russian army into Poland, and Stanislaus surrendered to Catherine and to the Second Partition of Poland, with even more of the country's land being divided between Russia, Prussia, and Austria. However, one of the generals in the Polish military refused to surrender. Thaddeus Kosciuszko had been one of the foreign citizens who had come to the U.S. during the American Revolution to offer his services to the Continental Army, and he had proven himself resilient and determined during the course of that war enough to earn him the praise and admiration of many leaders in America, including Washington and Jefferson. Now, it was his home that needed his talents. After trying but failing in 1793 to get support from France, Kosciuszko returned to Krakow, where on March 12, 1794, 
he agreed to lead a revolt against the occupying Russian forces and issued a manifesto influenced by the U.S. Declaration of Independence. Despite his persistence and some early victories, Kosciuszko and his army just could not match the might of the Russian military. The two forces met for a decisive battle at Maschiovisa on October 10th, where Kosciuszko was wounded and taken into Russian custody. After the Polish defeat, the Russians captured the capital of Warsaw, forced Stanislaus to abdicate in November, and eliminated the Polish state altogether with the Third Partition, with the last land of Poland being again divided between Russia, Prussia, and Austria. Americans would take notice of Kosciuszko's stand against Russian might, with Benjamin Franklin Bosch's Aurora denouncing Catherine for, quote, her barbarous and implacable vengeance against the Poles. But the government would do nothing, as Washington was determined to keep the young nation separate from the conflicts of Europe. Honestly, even if the administration had wanted to intercede, as we've seen, the limited American military force was already tied up in the West, and the first six frigates of the U.S. Navy were still under construction. Besides, there was unrest closer to home that the United States had to keep a keen eye on, lest it spill over onto their shores. We last discussed the developments of what would come to be known as the Haitian Revolution in episode 1.18. As with the French Revolution, it is beyond the scope of this podcast to delve too far into the details of the Haitian Revolution, especially as Mike Duncan covered it so well in the Revolution's podcast, which I highly recommend, as it is a revolution that is deserving of more understanding in the public consciousness. And, to that end, I will put a link to it on the source notes page for this episode. However, there are some aspects of that revolution that we must cover, as it does play into the history of the latter part of the Washington administration, as well as the two successive administrations. When we last left Saint-Domingue, French Commissioner Leger Felicité Sontanax had issued a decree of emancipation to free enslaved peoples in the North Province on August 29, 1793. To understand Sontanax's motivations in issuing this decree, we must back up just a little bit. Now that we've talked a little more about the international scene and how events in France, Spain, Britain, and their respective colonies have been overlapping and influencing developments in various parts of the world, including what was then the American West, where the British exerted influence in the Northwest Territory, and Spain claimed a good chunk of what is now Mississippi and Alabama, it should come as little surprise to you that the British and Spanish had eyes on the troubled French colony of Saint-Domingue. Just a reminder about the vocabulary of the Haitian Revolution before we delve in. There are three distinct groups on Saint-Domingue that are labeled as such. Whites, which is pretty self-explanatory, though this group can encompass both large white landowners and slaveholders, and less well-to-do white laborers. Free coloreds, who are people of color who are free and, as with the whites, included a range of economic backgrounds, as some members of this group were wealthy landowners and slave owners, while others were laborers on down the economic ladder. And finally, the enslaved blacks, who were distinct from the free coloreds because they were enslaved. At least, until they rose up in revolt, that is. Some of the commanders of the armies of the former enslaved blacks had declared allegiance to Spain and were being supplied from the Spanish colony of Santo Domingo, with which Saint-Domingue shared the island of Hispaniola. Meanwhile, influential planters, both white and free-colored, appealed to Britain to intervene. Thus, not only were the official French authorities struggling against internal revolt, 
but also faced losing what was prior to 1791 their most lucrative colony to one of their international rivals. When Santanax and his fellow commissioner, Etienne Poverel, had arrived and assessed the situation, they found the loyalty of many of the whites to be questionable. They had originally turned to the free people of color in order to achieve their goal of restoring stability to the colony. But as events transpired, it became increasingly apparent that getting the support of the black rebel armies, which outnumbered any forces that either the whites or the free coloreds could put forward, would be key to stability. Thus, Santanax issued his decree in order to break the black armies away from the Spanish and bring them back into the French fold. It would prove effective, as, in April 1794, a rising power in the black armies named Toussaint L'Ouverture would renounce Spanish support in favor of that of the French Republic. The defection of Toussaint to the French cause could not have come at a better time, as the British had begun an invasion of the colony in September 1793 in the southern port of Jeremy, before being welcomed in without a fight to occupy the northwestern port of Mont Saint-Nicolas. Even before, but certainly after the decree of August 1793, as mentioned in episode 1.18, refugees fled from Saint-Domingue to the United States. Not just whites, but also free coloreds and the blacks enslaved by the whites and free coloreds. As they came into various port cities along the eastern seaboard, they brought with them tales of horror and chaos. The citizens of Jeremy and Mont-Saint-Nicolas were even welcoming in the accursed British as an alternative to the murderous bands of savages roaming about. Or so the story went from the whites and the free coloreds. Two major waves of refugees headed to the United States seaboard during this time. The first just after the initial slave insurrection in 1791, and the second after the colony's largest city, Cap Francaise, or as it was better known, Le Cap had suffered a major fire during the course of the revolutionary conflict in the summer of 1793. It was the first refugee crisis that the United States had been faced with in its short history, and there was debate on how to handle it. In January 1794, before becoming distracted by Dolly, Representative Madison had participated in a debate on a report from a select committee responding to a petition from Baltimore seeking federal aid to support, quote, 3,000 French refugees from Saint-Domingue whose funds are nearly exhausted and are praying the relief and aid of Congress. Madison argued that, though he, quote, wished to relieve the sufferers, he was afraid of establishing a dangerous precedent, which might hereafter be perverted to the countenance of purposes very different from those of charity, and that he could not undertake to lay his finger on that article in the federal constitution, which granted a right to Congress of expending on objects of benevolence the money of their constituents. Even as early as this, Americans were debating issues of American intervention in international affairs with much the same arguments as are still evidenced in contemporary debates. 2018, as of the release of this episode. As with now, it seems that there were some who felt that how the United States responded to these events happening beyond their shores could have impacts on our national security. First, the instability in the Caribbean was being taken advantage of by foreign powers, most notably Britain, as previously mentioned, to enlarge their holdings. In addition to the invasion of Saint-Domingue, British forces also invaded and temporarily held the islands of Guadeloupe, Martinique, and St. Lucia in 1794, though by the end of the year, they would be forced out of Guadeloupe by a force of French Republicans and local inhabitants. 
British domination of the Caribbean could have major impacts on American trading in the region, which had waxed and waned since the Revolution. Even from the early colonial days, the settlements on the eastern seaboard of North America had traded with the West Indies. But the trade had suffered as the British closed off their Caribbean ports to American shipping following the Revolution. Trading with Spanish colonies had likewise been cut off, but American merchants had found increased opportunities in trading in the French West Indies. And as the British Navy prevented French vessels from crossing the Atlantic to resupply their colonies, the French government had opened the doors fully to neutral shipping, with the U.S. being the largest partner in that trade. Indeed, the British, quote, found numerous American vessels in ports in Martinique when they invaded that island. American traders did not know as 1794 went on and the British worked to increase their holdings in the Caribbean that Jay's Treaty would reopen the British West Indies to U.S. shipping and thus were likely concerned that a British-dominated Caribbean would leave their ledger books dripping red. Likewise, the British invasions in the Caribbean threatened to have impacts on foreign policy as the large amount of American vessels in French colonial ports caused the British to question whether Franco-American ties were strictly economic or if the U.S. was aiding France in its war against Britain. Certainly, the new U.S. Minister to France, James Monroe, appearing rather chummy with the French government, didn't help Special Envoy John Jay and U.S. Minister to Britain Thomas Pinckney to make the case that the administration was committed to neutrality, something we'll discuss more in our next episode. One additional threat, however, loomed from the Caribbean and potentially threatened the states of the American Union. The slave insurrection that had begun on Saint-Domingue seemed to be spreading. In 1793, unsuccessful slave revolts were launched on both Guadeloupe and Martinique, and there was every reason to believe that if the slaves of Saint-Domingue were not brought back under control, that the impacts would continue and possibly spread to the United States. With these potential threats to national security, Washington needed to replace Henry Knox at the War Department with the best and the brightest, right? Good thing he had started early. Seeing the writing on the wall in terms of the likelihood of Knox's retirement early on in 1794, Washington had written to Charles Coatsworth Pinckney in January, asserting that he was, quote, in pursuit of a character, not only of competent skill in the science of war, but possessing a general knowledge of political subjects, of known attachment to the government we have chosen, and of proved integrity. Pinckney, who had served in the Revolutionary War and risen to the rank of Brigadier General, and who had been one of the individuals that Washington had considered for the position of Major General that Anthony Wayne ultimately ended up with in 1792, was just the man he had in mind for the post. In 1792, though Washington pronounced Pinckney to be, quote, a man of strict honor, erudition, and good sense, his junior rank and being little known in this part of the Union, i.e. the North, caused Washington to pass on him, but now the president wished to bring him into the fold. Though Pinckney admitted that, quote, of all the public offices in our country, the one you mentioned to me is that which I should like best to fill. He had to decline the offer due to, like Knox, being in a precarious financial state, quote, so much so that if I was to relax for some time to come in paying the closest attention to my private affairs, inevitable ruin would follow. No matter, there was still time until, of course, time ran out, and Washington had to come up with someone to replace Knox. As the department was so small, 
There was not a deputy that Washington could turn to with prior knowledge of departmental affairs, but there was someone who had previous Army experience from the Revolution, most notably in administrative functions as a member of the Board of War and as Quartermaster General, who had been involved in previous successful negotiations with Native Americans and who was already playing a role in the administration. Upon Knox's resignation, Washington appointed Postmaster General Timothy Pickering as the new Secretary of War, with Pickering assuming office on January 2, 1795. If the name sounds familiar, it should, as we discussed Pickering at some length in episode 1.20. As noted by Pickering biographer Gerald Clarefield, quote, Certainly the addition of the proud-spirited and provincial New Englander did nothing to improve the quality of the cabinet. On the other hand, Pickering was unquestionably a capable administrator. He had managed the Postal Department efficiently and economically. He was familiar with the administrative intricacies of his new office, and he had already proven himself capable of handling problems of this nature. Perhaps most importantly, he was available. At best, a man of little more than ordinary intellect, Pickering had arrived at a position of national prominence almost by default. Thankfully, when Hamilton announced his intentions, he also had a deputy that could be tapped to succeed him in office and could be expected to continue forward with his economic policies. Comptroller of the Treasury, Oliver Walcott Jr. Like Pickering, Walcott has been mentioned in earlier episodes, but unlike with Pickering, we haven't taken a close look at the incoming Treasury Secretary and she'll nail. Oliver Walcott Jr., you'll be little surprised to know, was the son of Oliver Walcott Sr., who was a signer of the Declaration of Independence and was, at that time, serving as Lieutenant Governor of Connecticut. Politics ran in Walcott's family, as his grandfather had served as the Colonial Governor of Connecticut, while his uncle had served as a Speaker of the House of Representatives and Judge of the Supreme Court of Connecticut. Walcott Jr. had a lengthy career in public finances, rising from an initial post as a clerk in the office of the Committee of the Pay Table in Connecticut to serve as first auditor and then comptroller of the Federal Treasury before assuming office as the second Treasury Secretary on February 2, 1795, and could thus be expected to bring good counsel to the president in his new role. Thus, as Hamilton prepared to leave office, both he and the president could look forward. One of Hamilton's last official acts would be to prepare a, quote, report on a plan for the further support of public credit, in which he, despite his support for maintaining a public credit, answered Democratic-Republican concerns about the debt and Washington's request for such a proposal by outlining a plan to pay off the public debt in full in 30 years. At present, servicing the debt accounted for 55% of federal expenditures, but with Hamilton's plan of new taxes, as well as establishing certain current taxes as permanent, Hamilton devised a proposal which would be, quote, the truest policy in the United States to give all possible energy to public credit by firm adherence to its strictest maxims, and yet to avoid the ills of an excessive employment of it by true economy and system in the public expenditures by steadily cultivating peace, and by using sincere, efficient, and persevering endeavors to diminish present debts, prevent the accumulation of new, and secure the discharge within a reasonable period of such as it may be matter of necessity to contract. Peace 
and proper administration had thus far served the Washington administration well and had brought about seeming prosperity for the nation as Washington neared the final two years of his second term. Even with his lieutenants leaving him, if he could just keep his hands steady on the wheel, he might just be able to guide the ship of state into a quiet harbor from which he could take his leave. As he wrote to Edmund Pendleton in January 1795, quote, Although I have no cause to complain of the want of health, I can religiously aver that no man was ever more tired of public life or more devoutly wished for retirement than I do. However, as he went on to state, another ship's arrival was needed before that point could be reached. Quote, The madness of European powers and the calamitous situation into which all of them are thrown by the present ruinous war ought to be a serious warning to us to avoid a similar catastrophe as long as we can with honor and justice to our national character. What will be the result of Mr. J's mission is more than I'm able at this moment to disclose. Next time, the ship carrying Mr. J's treaty arrives in the United States in an episode I'd like to call A Monument of Folly or Venality, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Treaty. Special thanks again to Thomas Daly of the American Biography Podcast. In addition to our usual show notes, I'll have links to the American Biography Podcast webpage on the page on the Presidency's website for this episode. As for me, feel free to reach out to me with any questions, comments, or New Year's Rockin' Eve 1795 memorabilia via email at presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. I'm also available on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies or on Twitter at presidencies89. Sources used in this episode can be found at presidencies.blueberry, that's blueberry without the e's, dot com. You can also find on there all the options to subscribe to the podcast so that you can be sure not to miss a single episode. Thank you so much for listening, and take care, dear friends. Until next time. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.